Welcome to Reading Around Macro. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I will be reading an essay by Jeff Snyder at Real Clear Markets. This essay is about a recent study completed by the Sveriges Riksbank, Sweden's central bank, that examined the effect of QE on collateral. And, no spoiler alert, this is yet another study by yet another central bank that says, where's the beef? Where are the meatballs? Where are, where's the Swedish fish? Basically, that QE may not be positive, it may not be neutral, in fact, it may be harming the system. And you can read along at Real Clear Markets. It's called Because Central Bankers Have No Clue What Else to Do, posted on June 11th, 2021. What's the harm? Even if it doesn't work well or much at all, this QE stuff can't hurt. Sure, it's a lot of noise, but that's really the point. Expectation-centered policy is all about managing expectations. So if the general public is treated to a spectacular show, the bigger the better, eagerly enthused by the entertainment, all is expected to be well. Or at least not as bad as otherwise. Jobs saved, in other words. For those who continue to see all this as real money printing, a historical dilemma allegedly alike only in Weimar, Germany. Therefore, what a week to be highlighting these issues. Inflation numbers in China, PPI, were reported earlier to have been the highest in almost 13 years, while the U.S. CPI, as you no doubt heard yesterday, was like something out of the 1980s, near literally. These accelerating... Blah, these accelerating rates of change are exactly what critics have been warning about since the first American QE. Less was made of Japan's, given its deflationary mindset had been entrenched for more than a decade beforehand. Reckless money printing would always, always lead to out-of-control monetary inflation and worse. Given not just May's CPI, but also April's, this makes two straight months of rates unseen in America since George Bush, the father. Yet, over these past two months, really approaching three, this view has been more strenuously rejected in the one place which otherwise would be over-eager to sniff out the slightest probability for it. Yes, bonds. The very same instruments which stand to be destroyed should this inflationary fiction ever transform into such horrific reality. The first tiny credible thread to it would unleash a bond sell-off putting 1994's massacre to full shame. On the contrary, going back to mid-March in U.S. Treasuries and earlier February 25th around much of the rest of the world's sovereign debt markets, inflation has been priced less likely by the day. A consecutive pair of the biggest CPIs in decades rates fall as if they didn't happen at all. Why? To some, maybe many, the answer must be QE. Central banks like the Federal Reserve are, right now, buying up tons of these bonds, billions, 
tens of billions in purchases, including U.S. Treasuries, undoubtedly keeping rates from rising in that 94 kind of way. It sounds perfectly plausible. There remains no serious evidence whatsoever for it. As I've written too many times before, the theory's nice, yet useless in practice. Bond yields do and have behaved independently of strictly the bond purchasing aspect of any LSAP, large-scale asset purchases, of which QE is the major type. Take US QE1, for example, when long-term US Treasury yields immediately rose upon its very announcement in December 2008. They didn't actually come back down again until the middle of 2010 when it started to become clear something was still very wrong in the money world, a fact more thoroughly established in 2011 when, after the end of the second QE, yields plummeted. Central bank literature agrees, to a point. What most studies say is that they can't find any tangible impact on interest rates. Maybe a dozen basis points, perhaps half a percent, if the LSAP is absolutely enormous. These results actually speak for themselves in that numerous QE experiments have yielded such scant yield influence despite several really big ones. On the other hand, now more than 20 years after Japan's first QE and more than a dozen since the U.S. began experimenting with the same, it's finally beginning to sink in that there really could have been a net negative impact from this moneyless monetary puppet show. Inflation, in other words. Presuming that to be the opposite of deflation, it isn't, but that's for another debate. Officials worldwide have let slip the money printing and then stood by helpless as infants as in each and every case it led to only more disinflation as well as, too many times, outright deflation. Maybe it has been just too terrible to ponder, thus keeping any such rational thoughts from reaching the public sector hive mind. Perhaps this lack of inflation could be partly perhaps greatly due to QE itself. The introduction of quantitative easing corresponds to serious already existing problems in whichever monetary system, though in truth there's really just the one which matters. So it's not as if QE is foisted upon an otherwise healthy set of circumstances hastening some previously unwitnessed decade. It's got that much going for it. So, you can understand the somewhat cavalier attitude resulting. It's already pretty bad to begin with, so really, why not give it a full go? What does anyone have to lose? It can't get any worse, can it? Well, yes, it actually can. There are several ways, but the most direct harm comes from the other side of this kind of transaction, the money printing Fiction focuses too narrowly on only one part of it, the creation of bank reserves. The Fed, or whatever central bank buys an asset and issues reserves to the seller that didn't exist prior. 
money printed, QED. No. The reserves may not have existed before, but the asset bought up sure did. In practice, QE or any LSAP exchanges one asset for another from the bank's perspective, which is the only one that truly matters. More reserves, less bonds. It may sound harmless enough until you realize how vital these assets are to the monetary system, especially its global offshore vastness beyond the small subset of primary dealers performing the actual debt swapping with the central bank. The reason I've written about this collateral business for such a long time, dead horse and all that, is because it has taken these many years for it all to finally and truly sink in, in an exceedingly small, though no longer zero number of places. Over the past couple of years, in particular, a few central banks, including the Fed, have allowed staff members to piece together and publish their findings, which are exactly those we've been saying for all those deflationary eons in between. Just last month, just last month Sweden's central bank became merely the latest to do so. What's interesting about this particular study, Sveriges Riksbank, Sweden's central bank, working paper series number 402, published in May 2021, is that the authors focused on an almost perfectly segregated case study while being able to analyze heaps, mountains of extremely granular data to raise the robustness of their conclusions that much more. To begin with, Riksbank purchased only government bonds, allowing researchers to isolate essentially a control group, comparing, in effect, the government market with any in the unspoiled wider private debt marketplace. What they found isn't actually surprising. Again, we've seen and I've written constantly about it for years on end. There's no need for a spoiler alert. QE strips collateral forcing bank dealers to adjust in ways that unilaterally propose a reaction to serious harm to systemic monetary condition and operation. In the academic literature, this has been called the scarcity effect. Basically, what I just wrote, the central bank robs the private secured markets, repo and derivatives, of a substantial amount of formerly usable, reusable, and redistributable collateral. Past some certain point, and the Swedish authors believe they found it, the negative effects of collateral stripping, the scarcity effect, doesn't just outweigh any positive effect from QE's so-called demand effect, the purchasing of bonds itself. Oh no. Once a central bank passes that threshold, there was, in the Swedish data, a non-linear aspect to the injury surpassing any proposed benefit. Yeah, importantly, the nonlinearity of the impact of QE on market liquidity may explain why the empirical literature on the impact of QE on government bond market liquidity has found mixed results. Yeah, we show that the central bank QE hmm, has also a significant impact on the usage of security lending facility mm -hmm, by prim prim primary dealers, absent which the negative impact of bond scarcity would presumably have been higher, yeah. 
a low-level monetary problem leading to a lower-level QE response, maybe there are some small net benefits in the market function. While this paper emphasizes liquidity in terms of only government bond market themselves, it doesn't take much to understand how the same principles apply to supply money supply factors and liquidity in more general systemic sense beyond the market for trading in specifically government bonds. Repo is, after all, its global monetary backbone. But it's actually the last part quoted above which helps us piece together a couple of recent, seemingly inconsistent factors plaguing our CPI-infested contradictions. Sweden's central bank also employs a relatively robust, by comparison, securities lending program, the securities lending facilities referred to in the quote. In fact, studying detailed use of it has helped inform the paper's conclusions that dealers, when confronted by artificial collateral scarcity induced by QE, they are left often to hit up securities lending in greater quantity as well as frequency and duration. If you can't get the bonds collateral you need because the central bank has taken too much of it, then you really have to go knocking on the central bank's door to pry some of it back out, at least rent it. That sounds quite a lot like one last big topic of conversation in recent weeks and days, the Federal Reserve's reverse repo. The latter has registered more than half a trillion, 534.9 billion as of yesterday afternoon. Not just an enormous amount, What's gained so much attention is how little time it has taken to reach it. If you go back to March 17, for example, not a single dealer anywhere had lent the Fed cash in this thing. Yes, loan money to the central bank. Huh. That's how the reverse repo works. If only from the one side of it, the same less interesting side as what's focused on in QE. More to the point, dealers and some non-bank cash holders like money market funds actually lend their cash to the Federal Reserve on a secured basis. This means, importantly, that what's coming back is U.S. Treasury's collateral of some specified kind. This makes the Fed's reverse repo a way more limited version of the Sveriges Riksbank securities lending facility. Thus, if in Sweden they found dealers using that program when collateral became scarce, that's just more evidence to go along with intuition and common sense, the same could, would happen in the US dollar counterpart. Again, limited. And collateral scarcity with all its money negative, liquidity damaging consequences very easily explains the behavior of bond yields in the face of so much inflationary noise. It isn't some random coincidence that on March 18th, that's the day when the Fed's dealers started showing up at the reverse repo window, the very same day that long-term U.S. Treasury yields peaked and correspondingly began to drop no matter what inflation data in between. Jay Powell's Fed is still buying U.S. Treasuries and taking them 
out of collateral circulation at an enormous pace, swapping the banking system with useless bank reserves as QE's byproduct. At the same time, Janet Yellen has been forced to refund especially T-bills, further exacerbating this shortage by removing even better collateral. The Fed hasn't been buying more T-bills since the crisis last March, a tacit acknowledgement of having screwed that one up in the same way. On top of those, risk aversion has rather quickly crept its way back into the general global marketplace as economic circumstances more and more fail, yet again, to resemble the inflationary narrative. In other words, it isn't just treasury yields which are falling since March. Nearly every major market around the world has reversed away from reflation with several key places such as Japan's JGBs, where their QQE is still ongoing too, putting in new multi-month lows along with U.S. treasuries just this week. Is this the perfect collateral storm? Even if it isn't, the reverse repo and its near-perfect correlation with anti-reflation falling U.S. Treasury yields more than suggests the same negative money undercurrents which have repeatedly undermined the inflation story and whatever its potential year after agonizing year. There are a number of macro reasons to doubt the surge for CPI in the U.S. or China's PPI is sustainable. There is also a more powerful monetary reason, too. QE doesn't help, and it isn't neutral. Nonlinear is the word here, meaning that beyond certain points and reverse repo levels do suggest something like this. All that bond buying actually creates more deflationary potential than a stricken monetary system might if alternately left to its own malfunctioning devices. That wouldn't be good, but why make it worse? Because they don't know what else to do. The data and the evidence are all there, and they have been there all along. Because it challenges the existing monetary worldview all the way down to its very core, central bankers have kept undercutting their own efforts, one QE after another, and you can't make this up, chasing the vain hopes that this is all just some bad dream and the world, through nothing more than just random good luck, just might awaken before the public truly realizes and appreciates what has really happened. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Reading Around Macro. It's remarkable how many of these central bank studies have come out in the last year saying maybe the world, the solar system, the monetary system doesn't revolve around us. And this is just another one that can be added to the list. Well, I hope you got your pump on while you're listening to this or perhaps you were training for a long endurance run or you were in a canoe or perhaps trapping in the greater Canadian North or you were working offshore in an oil derrick. I'm not sure, but let me know in the comments and on Twitter, on YouTube in the comments section, on Twitter at Emil Kalinowski, and you can find Jeff's work at Alhambra Investments. They have a blog there. 
and at Real Clear Markets. He has essays there. And where else can you find him? I think that's it. That's it. 